I always have to put my timer so I don't go eight hours long. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a blessing to be here this morning, uh, always to worship with the saints here at Reformation Bible Church. And um, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. And so if you would turn to Ephesians 1, uh, I'll be reading verses 3 through 14. And uh, this may look familiar. Uh, if you remember the last time I was here, uh, we considered the same portion of Scripture. So I'll go ahead and read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive in. This is the word of the living God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Well, let's pray. Our great God, we come to you, as always, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that we have such a Savior who came and lived a perfect life in our place and then died bearing our sin on Calvary, making full payment for our sin so that you, being a just and holy God, could forgive us, so that your wrath could be satisfied, your just demands could be satisfied, so that you could forgive us and pour out upon us the great blessings of the gospel. And Lord, we come now and we open your word and we ask you your help. We, we pray that by your spirit that you would help me to preach your word with boldness and with clarity, that you would comfort us through your word and convict us, that you would reprove us, that you would strengthen us and encourage us. Father, that you would fill our hearts to overflowing as we consider the greatness of your grace in Christ. We ask now for the help of your Holy Spirit, and that your Holy Spirit would not just 
help us as we listen to your word and consider your word, but that your Holy Spirit would help us to live it, believe it, and obey all of it. And we pray all this confidently, knowing that you hear the cries of your people. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, a year ago, I preached, uh, about a year and a half ago now, I guess, I preached a sermon here on Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. And then uh, four months ago, I preached a sermon on Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 5. Um, so I noticed that last time I was here, some of you had remembered, I, I, I said, do you remember when I said this? And a lot of you said, yeah. And I was like, well, their memory is better than mine. And uh, so, uh, so I'm going to lean upon you for your memory this morning from the last time I was here. So uh, we'll be looking in at verse 5. And just by way of reminder, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence in the original language. It's one sustained, complete thought. It's a run-on sentence, really, in the original. And really, Paul's whole point in this passage is to, uh, is to worship God. It's to praise God. You see, uh, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's worshiping God, blessing God, praising God because of the greatness of God's grace toward us, the riches of God's grace toward us in Christ. And so in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why, why do we praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Why does Paul sing in his heart? Why does he have a song on his lips? Because God, in verse 3, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So the reason why Paul is inviting the Ephesians to bless God, to worship God, is because of the greatness of God's grace, the greatness of God's blessings. He's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, in verses 4 through 14, Paul goes on to enumerate these blessings. We worship God because he's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. So what are these blessings that he's given us in Christ? Well, Paul begins to list them out. In verse 4, he mentions the blessing of our election unto holiness. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. In verse 5, he mentions the blessing of predestination unto adoption. In verse 7, he mentions redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In verse 11, he mentions our great inheritance, heaven itself. In verse 13, in 14, he mentions the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So Paul is listing out these blessings. In verse 3, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Well, because he's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. So what are these blessings? Well, you know, election unto holiness, predestination unto adoption, forgiveness of sins, redemption, 
this heavenly inheritance and the Spirit who is the guarantee of this inheritance. These are the heights of the blessings that the Father has given us in his Son. Now, this morning we're going to be zeroing in on verse 5, and we'll be considering this blessing of predestination unto adoption. And we're going to be considering what many theologians consider to be the highest height of the gospel, and that is the doctrine of adoption. And so we are going to, uh, well, if you want to follow along, I guess, um, kind of where I'm headed is we're just going to first kind of walk through verse 5, kind of phrase by phrase, word by word, and then I'm going to follow up with five implications of the doctrine of adoption for us as Christians. So let's go ahead and jump in and just walk through verse 5. And really, the thought in verse 5 begins at the, at the end of verse 4. You see the last two words in verse 4? He says, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons. In love he predestined us. And there we see what drove God and what motivated God to predestine us. And what motivated God to predestine you? What motivated God to predestine me? Love. You know, I think many people have this thought of predestination. This is a a scary doctrine, right? And I know that there are some pastors, I actually remember a pastor when I was in college who preached through the book of Romans and when uh, they got to chapter 9, he skipped chapter 9 altogether because of predestination. It's this scary doctrine. That is completely 1,000% wrong. The doctrine, of, uh, uh, the doctrine of predestination is not a scary, cold, dark doctrine. What drove God to predestine you? It was love. If God was not a God of infinite love, he would not have predestined you. This is exactly what Paul is saying. He says, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons. In love, this is what drove him to do it. The doctrine of predestination is not a a, a scary doctrine. It's a comforting doctrine. It's not a a cold doctrine. It's a warm doctrine. It's 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 an assuring doctrine. It's a doctrine that tells us of the great love of God for us. And in essence, what the doctrine of predestination is, it's the, it's the doctrine that tells us of the love of God for us. When in, in eternity past, when God set his seal of love on you and pledged to himself to redeem you. And what was the goal in, in predestination? What, what did he predestine you unto? To bring you into his family. It's not, a, it's not a scary doctrine. And, it, and it's not a doctrine that we as the church can just afford to just kind of say, well, that is a contentious doctrine, therefore we can just kind of sweep it away. And it, it is a controversial doctrine because the church, uh, many in the church don't agree on, the, what, on what, upon what basis does God predestine us. That's where the, the debate rages. That's where there is some controversy, and I'll leave that controversy up to Pastor Gabe. But this morning, and he can, you know, handle all of the all of the 
you know, the barbs that come back and forth with that debate. But, um, but this morning, the, the thing to note is that everyone believes in the doctrine, all Christians, Bible-believing Christians, believe in the doctrine of predestination, and that this doctrine of predestination is a wonderful doctrine. In love, he predestined you. You know, we think of, I remember the first time I heard of the doctrine of predestination, I was 17, and my brother showed it to me in the Bible. I had to believe it because the Bible said it, and I'm a Christian, and you, 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 you believe what the Bible says, but I, I didn't like it at all. <laughs> um, I said, well, I guess I have to believe it because God said it, but, uh, you know, it's one of these doctrines I... Because when I thought of predestination, I thought of it as, you know, God is some sort of like a divine chess player and we're just pawns and, and he just kind of arbitrarily is choosing, you know, predestining and he's some sort of a divine machine who has no regard for people. But what we see when we look at Ephesians 1 verses 5 and six is that predestination tells us that God did not predestine us arbitrarily. He's not a machine. He predestined you and he predestined me because he loves you. He loved you even before the foundation of the world. And we see at the end of verse five, we see this. He says, uh, He says, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. A better translation would be according to the good pleasure of his will. And what does that mean? Well, he did this because it delighted him to predestine you. It delighted him. He did it because it made him happy to do so. And so, so many people, when they think of the doctrine of predestination, they think of the God of predestination, they think of this cold, mechanical killjoy, you know, who dispenses his grace reluctantly, and he's just this arbitrary God who's moving pawns on his chessboard with no concern for people and who they are. But that's not the case at all. He, he predestined you because he loved you. He predestined you because it pleased him to predestine you unto adoption. So we have to consider this word predestination. What does it mean? We know he did it in love. He would not have predestined us if he was not a God of infinite love. But what does this word predestined mean? Well, this word in the original, it means literally, this is from a a Greek lexicon, It means to mark out beforehand, to come to a decision beforehand, to decide beforehand, to determine ahead of time, or to decide upon ahead of time. And there's really two parts to this word predestined. It's a it's a compound word. You have the word, you know, the word pre, which means ahead of time or beforehand. So you think of a pre-game interview, and that's an interview before the game, right? Um and then destination, predestination. What is, the word destination means where you're going to end up, where you're headed. 
And what predestination is when God makes a decision, he determines your destination beforehand. And that's why we see in verse 3, or verse 4 rather, that he did this before the foundation of the world. He predestined you at the same time he elected you, the same time he chose you. He did it before the foundation of the world. So he chose your destination, determined your destination before he even created you. Now this is, you know, you know, this is kind of a one of these things where people all of a sudden start to get upset and they say, well, how could he do that? That's not fair. Well, well, consider the end unto which he predestined you. Unto what end did he predestine you and me? Well, we see it, the next word in the passage. Even as he, in love, he predestined us for what? He predestined us unto what end? What was he aiming at when he chose it? What destination was he aiming at? What, what was he aiming at in predestination? He was aiming at your adoption. He predestined you for adoption as sons. This is not a scary, dark, cold doctrine. He predestined you to, be, to adopt you into his family. That's what he was aiming at. To bring you into his family as a son or as a daughter of God. This is, the, this is the goal of predestination. That you would not just be a subject of King Jesus, or that you would not just be a subject of the king, but that you would be a child of the king. This is the end. This is the goal that he had in mind when he predestined you. So what is adoption? You see it in the text. Let me just read it again. I don't want you to to miss it. In love, he predestined us for adoption. That's the aim of predestination. It was motivated by love, and the purpose of this predestination was adoption. That's what he was aiming at. He pledged to himself an eternity past to redeem you and to bring you into his family as a son. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ. What does adoption mean? What does it mean that we've been adopted by God? Well, in the ancient world, when Paul wrote this in the first century, in the Roman world, according to Roman law, a man could adopt a child or even an adult. Adults were often adopted in the first century. A man, could, a man who had no children would often a, a, adopt a child or an adult and make them a full-blown child, a, a full-blown son. And an adopted child in Roman law, according to Roman law, had all the rights and privileges. Uh, let me restate that. An adopted child, in, according to Roman law, had all the legal rights and privileges of a natural-born son. All the rights and privileges of a natural-born son. So what would be a right and a privilege of a natural-born son? He would be, receive the inheritance of his adopted, adoptive father. The land, the farm, would belong to the adopted son. And the son would have legal rights to the inheritance. 
because the adopted son would be would have the same status as a natural born son and so this is what adoption is in the ancient world and what paul is saying is that god has adopt he predestined us unto adoption which means that he has adopted us into the status where we have all the rights and privileges of a natural born son of god so that is adoption and j.i packer in his book knowing god which by the way is a great book he says that the doctrine of adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel and listen to what he says about adoption and from here on out we're gonna be considering five implications of the doctrine of adoption it's not going to take you know an hour more so just cool your jets right um but listen to what j.i packer says about the doctrine of adoption he says you sum up the whole of new testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of god as one's holy father if you want to judge how well a person understands christianity find out how much he makes of the thought of being god's child and having god as his father if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life it means that he does not understand christianity very well at all for everything that christ taught everything that makes the new testament new and better than the old everything that is distinctively christian as opposed to merely jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of god father is the christian name for god our understanding of christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption now that's a a high praise of the doctrine of adoption and i read that because it's so true (laughs) this is the primary and most fundamental identity for us as christians what are you as a christian most fundamentally you are a child of god through christ that's what you are who am i i'm a child of god i belong to him he is my father that's who i am i'm a sinner saved by grace i'm a child of god so what i want to do with the the time remaining is to walk through five implications of this doctrine of adoption for our christian lives for us and my hope and my goal is that you would be blown away (laughs) at the glory of what has been bestowed upon us as Christians. This doctrine of adoption is adopted. This doctrine should lead us to worship God for the indescribable riches of His grace and kindness and bounty toward us in Christ. So, the first implication of adoption. Adoption implies that we are not that we are not natural born children of God. You don't adopt a natural born child. You don't adopt, adopt a natural born your biological children. Adoption implies that we are not natural born children. 
what, what do we see in Ephesians chapter 2? I, I read it, I think, the last two times I was here, so you'd all remember it, of course, that we are, by nature, children of wrath. We are, by nature, fallen sons of Adam. That's what we are by nature. By nature, we are sinners, condemned, unclean, deserving of the wrath of God. We are children of wrath. We are not natural-born children of God. By nature, we are children of wrath. By grace and by grace alone, we are made children of God. So we are we are not children of God by nature. We are children of God by grace. And Paul goes on in verse 6, and he makes this point explicitly clear. He says in verse 5, In love he predestined us un, uh, for adoption as sons. Let me, let me go ahead and find it before I read it. In, uh, sorry, in verse 5, he says, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of, the will, of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. It's to the praise of his glorious grace. Why? Be- because we don't deserve this. We are not natural-born children. We are children of God by grace, not by nature. By nature, we deserve His wrath. By nature, we deserve condemnation and damnation. But by grace, we are, He has adopted us and He has brought us into His family. We are children of God by grace, which means that, that this status of being children of God should lead us to humility. We should never look at a non-Christian, right? Especially in our day and age today where non-Christians are doing things that are just... The culture, is fall, the culture is falling apart and our depraved culture is becoming more and more depraved and our tendency as Christians is to look at the depravity and to look at them as if we aren't made of the same stuff as they are. That we're above them somehow. No, we are not above them somehow. We are what we are by the grace of God. And we have no room to boast. And we have, we only boast in the cross. And there is nothing about us that makes us better than the people we see on TV doing these things that are so horrendous. We are what we are by the grace of God. By nature, we are what they are. By grace, we are adopted children of God. And so our response to adoption should be the same thing as, remember in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 9, Mephibosheth? David, basically, he was, a, he, was a, um, he was one of Saul's descendants. And David basically adopted Mephibosheth. He was lame in the feet. And David said... You're going to eat at the table with all my sons. And he said that I'm going to deploy my servants to till your ground. And he was a son of Saul, the man who was trying to kill David. And you remember what Mephibosheth said. It's a Calvinist favorite verse in the Bible because it's hardcore, right? But he said, 
What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? That that's, should be our response to adoption. It's humility. Who am I that you should make me your child? By nature, I am a child of wrath. Only infinite love and infinite grace could make this happen. So the first implication of adoption is that adoption implies that we are not natural-born children of God. The second implication of adoption is that adoption implies intimacy. There is no relationship on earth that is more intimate than a father's relationship with his children, other than the one flesh union with a man and his wife. When we talk about a father relating to his son and son relating to his father, we're talking about the most intimate relationship that God has created. There is no greater intimacy than being a son or a daughter and approaching God as father. And this is why J.I. Packer, he says that the greatest, the highest blessing of the gospel is adoption. He says, now don't get me wrong. You can read it in this chapter on adoption. He says, don't get me wrong. Justification is the most foundational or fundamental blessing of the gospel. But the highest blessing of the gospel is adoption. And he, and he, and he, he distinguishes justification and adoption. He says justification is the most foundational blessing of the gospel. Because in justification, God as our judge, we stand in justification before God as our judge. And God as our judge, when he slams the gavel down, he declares us to be innocent even though we are guilty, as, the, as guilty as the day is long. We've broken all of his commandments, right? We are guilty. We are not righteous. We have fallen short of the glory of God. But in justification, God declares us to be righteous. We stand before him as our judge. He declares us to be righteous because our sin was cast upon Christ when he was on the cross. Jesus made full payment for our sin. And and so there was this great exchange. He took our sin, and then he gave us his righteousness, and his righteousness is laid to our account. And because our sins have been paid for in the death of Christ, and because his righteousness has been laid to our account, God, as our judge, declares us to be righteous. That's what justification is. He declares you to be righteous in his sight. But in ju- and so all the other blessings of the gospel flow out of this foundational, fundamental blessing of justification. But in justification, we're relating to God as our judge. In adoption, we are relating to God as our father. In justification, God as our judge declares us to be righteous. 
But in adoption, God, our judge, steps out from behind the bench and takes off his robes of legal robes. And he grabs us by the hand and walks us into his palace. Not as some sort of a tourist, right? But as children who inhabit his home. The intimacy of adoption. We relate to him. We don't even merely relate to him as a king. Yes, he is our king. But our king is our father. That's a a big difference, right? That's kind of a major qualification. It is a major qualification. He is our master, but our, our master is our father. And so you think about the angels, right? The angels are not children of God. They are servants, ministering spirits. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, or is it 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12? One of the two. It's in verse 12, either 1 or 2 Peter, where he says that the angels long to look into these things. They long to look into these things. Because they're servants. They don't know what it is to be a child of God. Now, if the gospel stopped at, imagine this, I mean, if the gospel was Jesus dies for your sins, your debt is paid, you're given his righteousness, God declares you righteous, and then he says, you are a subject in my kingdom, a righteous subject in my kingdom, that would be enough for us to sing. Wouldn't it? Because he's a great king. (laughs) And a good king provides for his citizens. And a good king protects his citizens. A good master meets the needs and protects and loves and provides for his servants. That would be enough to sing praises to the glory of God's grace. But in adoption, God goes above and beyond that. And he actually brings us into his family. So that we uh, uh, can approach him. We can have, you know, in Hebrews, we can have bold access to him. The access that a child has to his father. He invites us to cast all of our cares on him. as As a child would cast all their cares on their father. So we have... A relationship with God that even the angels long to look into. You know, you think of uh, one of the most iconic photos in American history is that picture of JFK's son playing under the Resolute desk. Right? Why? Well, is was JFK that child's president? His, yeah, yeah, yeah but his, the president was his dad, right? You, you go in and try to play Legos under the Resolute desk. You, you, don't, you don't get there. 
because you don't have access to the president like his son does. Right. There is an intimacy here. There is a... And and think about it, I'm just going to go back to this. Predestination, so scary, such a scary doctrine. Well, this is what God had in mind when he predestined you. Warm intimacy, you with him and he with you. No red tape, no barred doors preventing you from bold access whenever you need it. Whenever you want communion with your God, it's, it's yours because you're his child. You have freedom, you have boldness to go before him. So you're not just a subject of the king. You're a child of the king. Well, the third implication of adoption is that adoption implies discipline. And this makes us think, does it not, of Hebrews chapter 12, where the author of the letter to the Hebrews says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God, listen to this, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So adoption implies discipline. I remember uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, I... Uh, was taking Spanish too, and I was a horrible student at that time in my life. I didn't work at it at all. Um, Don't follow in my footsteps, young people. Um, I changed things around. It was actually after this class, what I'm about to tell you, but um, this is what made me say, hey, I I actually like want to be able to afford food for my family when I grow up, so I should probably like try harder. Um, But I was in Spanish too, and uh, we had a massive test. I didn't study for it. I didn't prepare for it. It was the night before, and I had never cheated on a test, at least for myself, <laughs> in my life. I cheated for a friend in sixth grade. That's another story. I got caught, and then after that, I was like, this just isn't worth it, right? So um, I was like, I'm not prepared for this test. I am going to flunk, and I'm going to get an F in this class if I don't cheat. So I called up my friend, and I said, hey, do you cheat on tests? And he's like, uh, yeah, everyone does. And I said, well, I never have, and I don't know how. Can you give me some of the tricks of the trade? And uh, he said, you've never cheated on a test? Well, yeah, I mean, it's pretty simple. And he told me, you know, his plans, and, and he's like, well, in Spanish class, everybody cheats. <laughs> and um, so... I got to class that morning. Actually, he made me up a cheat sheet and everything. It was very nice of him. And uh, he showed me how to do it without getting caught. And I was like, man, this is great. Um, I sat down, and the teacher, Miss Jurdy, handed the, the tests out. It landed on my desk. And it dawned on me for the first time 
God is not going to let me get away with this. And I remember, I mean, there was, it was like uh, spiritual warfare. As much anger as a sophomore in high school can have, I had at that moment. I was so angry because I knew that God would not let me live with it. I knew that my conscience was going to eat me alive. The conviction of the Holy Spirit, I, I knew that I was going to have to, the next day, go to Miss Journey and say, I'm sorry, I cheated. I knew it. I just knew it. I knew it, and there was no way that I was going to get around it. And I thought, well, what if I can just numb my conscience? I was like, I know I can't do it. God's not going to let me do it. And I was so angry, and I ended up not cheating on the test. Got like a 25%, which is what I deserved. And my friends got B's, and you know, because you don't want to get an A, because then it's something suspicious. But um, years later, I thought about that. And I'm not trying to put words in God's mouth, but I said, you know, I I think I understood what was going on there. And what God was saying is, because I was saying, Lord, all these other kids get to do it. And the Lord was saying, not audibly, or this isn't extra revelation. He was saying, in essence, they're not my children. Right? You've, you've had this conversation with your parents where you say, well, Joey gets to do it. Yeah, they're not my, he's not my kid. You're my child. And, and God knows better than we do, obviously, knows the destruction and the misery of sin. God knows that sin is utterly sinful. He knows the that, that sin leads to death. Sin is a cancer. Sin is, when you eat it, it tastes sweet, but it it's, causes rot in your belly. Sin leads to death. And God knows that. And He says, you are my child. And I know all the other kids are cheating on their taxes. I know all the other kids are lying and all these other things, but I'm not going to let you do it because you're my child. And if you do do it, you may run in it for a while, but God will chase you down and he will discipline you. He will leave the 99. He will go after the one. Read that in the context of Matthew 18. He does that with the process of church discipline. He disciplines those he loves. He says, I don't care about those other people. They're not my children. You are. And I love you too much. To run headlong into destruction and misery. Sin ruins everything. And so he disciplines us because because he loves us, right? Sin is like that hot stove. You tell the child, don't touch the hot stove. Because they don't know how much it can hurt. And God says, don't sin. And we sin and he disciplines us so that we might learn to obey. 
Because we all know that disobedience is a very bitter road to travel. So God will not simply let his children go the way they want to go. The fourth implication of adoption is that adoption implies personal ownership. And actually, you can see this in our text in verse 5. He says, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through, or sorry, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of of his will. Some translations include in there that in love he predestined us for adoption as sons to himself. He predestined us for adoption to himself. And so we you think of of the the fact that a child belongs you know, the, your children belong to you. You there's a sense of ownership there. They belong to you. And because they belong to you, their personal, their, their well-being is your personal priority. So you marshal all of your strength and all of your resources to protect your children and to provide for your children. And you protect, for your, protect your children and provide for your children differently to a, to a greater degree than you protect for and provide other children. Even when we do charity... No one protects and provides for a child that is not their own to the same degree that they protect and provide for their own children. And that's actually biblical. That's the way it's supposed to be. Paul says he who does not take care of his own family and especially those of his own household is worse than an unbeliever and is denied the faith. Your responsibility is your children. And that's why when things go haywire in the public schools and they teach things that they should not be teaching children, the parents stand up and say, you're not teaching my child that. That's my child. There's a sense of ownership. And so you protect your children. And even even when you do charity, usually the way you protect for and provide for other children lives at the level of necessity, right? Right? But for your own children, you protect them and provide for them as much as you possibly can. As much as your resources and strength will allow. And so, you think about your children. There was this uh, interesting, uh, I was listening to a, a lecture by a seminary professor. He was a systematic theology professor. Actually, you probably know of him, Bruce Ware. And he said, uh, he said to his class filled with students, he said, listen, I love you guys. Um, I pray for you by name. These are all of his students. Every one of you are going to be coming over to our house for dinner at some point throughout this semester. He was actually talking about the doctrine of adoption when he said this. He says, if you get into an accident, I'll visit you at the hospital. He said, but I will not pay a dime for your education at this institution. And everybody laughed because it was both funny and it was blunt and it was self-evidently true. He said, no, I'll pay for my own kid's education, but I'm not paying for yours. And the point that he was making was 
when, when, when God is your Father, He protects you and provides for you like you're one of His. You get special treatment because you're His child. Right? And you think of someone like, like uh, Prince William and Princess Kate over across the pond, and you just imagine if they were to adopt a child, and that child would immediately be protected by the royal guard. Having these fuzzy-haired hat people walking all around with them. That, they're, they're now a child. They belong to Prince William and Princess Kate, and they get the protection that the royal family gets. They get to, this adopted child gets to eat the delicacies of the royal family and wears the, the clothing, has the wardrobe of the royal family. And if that's impressive, you think about the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who is infinite in power, omnipotent, and has all the resources that you can imagine and what you can't imagine. And all of this he marshals for you and for me to protect us and to provide for us because We are his children, and our well-being as his children is his personal priority. And there's comfort in that, and there's confidence in that. You just think about what Jesus says in Matthew 18. He says, talking about the one who would cause one of these little ones of mine to stumble. It would be better that a millstone be thrown, tied around his neck and be thrown into the sea. You don't mess with God's kids because they belong to him. So that means that anything that comes into our life, that, that God will protect you. Listen to this, now follow closely. Because of this, God will protect you from anything that may befall you. Which means that if something happens to you that's bad, it did not happen because he wasn't protecting you. It happened because he designed it for your good. Well, the last implication of adoption is that adoption implies inheritance. And this is why It's important in this text we see here in verse 5, in love, he predestined us for adoption, now notice the next two words, as sons. Now why doesn't Paul say as sons and daughters? What about the women, Paul, right? Why not sons and daughters? Well, he doesn't mention daughters. The reason he doesn't mention daughters is not because women are not included in this status or this blessing. The reason is, is that in the ancient world, the inheritance went to the sons. So it went to, and actually this is, there are some people who will say, this needs to be interpreted. He, uh, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters. And I say, no. (laughs) The reason I say no is not because I have anything against women, of course. The reason uh, that I say no is because if you, if you adopt it as, if you, if you translate it as sons and daughters, first of all, it's not 
what the original language says, but second of all, because it empties the glory of this reality. The sons, in particular, were the heirs of the family farm. It's the sons who received the inheritance. It's the sons. You think of Jacob and Esau, right? It's the sons. You think of of Isaac. It's the sons who receive the inheritance. In women, in Christ, there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, between slave or free or male or female, as Paul says in Galatians 3. And the glory of this is that women, you are adopted as sons, which means that you receive the inheritance that a son would receive. We all are adopted as sons. It doesn't mean that you, your gender changes. I wouldn't have to say that 20 years ago. But it doesn't mean that, but it means that you have the same status as a full-blown, natural-born son, as an adopted daughter of God. You get the family farm. Now, notice that Paul does not say that in love he predestined us for adoption as firstborn sons. There is only one firstborn son, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only natural-born son as well. He is the only begotten son of God. And Jesus, as the firstborn, gets the inheritance of the firstborn, right? You think about, uh, what does Paul say in Romans 8? He says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What's the last part say? That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's adoption language. He is the firstborn among many brethren. And we are brothers with Christ. He is our elder brother. He's the firstborn. The firstborn of creation. The firstborn among the de- of the dead. So that in all things he might have preeminence. But we are his brothers. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8. That the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. That we are children of God. And if children then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. As adopted children of God, we are fellow heirs with Christ, which means that all that belongs to Christ belongs to you. All that, And what belongs to Christ? Everything. Everything. Your situation and your status and your position as a Christian cannot be improved upon. All that belongs to Christ is yours. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world 
or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. How can Paul speak like that? Well, because we are adopted children of God. And as adopted sons, we have all the rights and privileges of a natural-born son. And we are co-heirs with Christ. And as co-heirs with Christ, we everything that belongs to him belongs to us. So whether it's life or death or the present or the future, all belo- we, everything belongs to us. The meek shall inherit the earth. And so Spurgeon says, listen to what Spurgeon says. He says, you may walk the broad acres of this round globe and never look upon a single spot that is not yours. You may cast your eye to the remotest star or send your thoughts beyond into the untraversed leagues of space. But look where you will, as all is Christ's, so all is yours. You have not come of age, so you do not yet possess it. But the day shall come when Christ shall come to this earth and take possession of it, and then his saints shall reign with him. The meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves with the abundance of peace. In Hebrews 1-2, we are told that God has appointed Christ heir of all things. Then we are heirs of all things, heaven and earth, time and eternity, anything that you can conceive of, the things that can be named and cannot be named, things conceivable and inconceivable, finite and infinite, human and divine. Christ's property extends to all, and we are co-heirs. Therefore, our rights and our property extend to all things whatsoever they may be. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours, and ye are Christ, and Christ is God's. It seems too good to be true. We do not yet possess it with our hands. We possess it by faith. But the day will come when it will be reality. When we will reign with him on his throne. The meek shall inherit the earth. Just think about that statement. It's incredible. The riches that have been poured out upon us in Christ. It cannot be improved upon. There's not anything that we can look to and say, well, God, if you would have done this for me or that for me, then I, you know, really, you know, that would really put it over the top. No, no, there's nothing that he can do to improve upon what he's given us in Christ. Especially knowing who we are by nature. We don't enjoy it as mere citizens. We enjoy it as his children. We have untold riches. We possess it now by faith. But when we enter into that reality, we will be royalty. Children of the King of Kings. And so we say with Paul, I mean, uh, to me, uh, at least to me, I hear this, I read this, and it makes me want to say with Paul, 
to the praise of his glorious grace. That he would pour this out on us. And we have no room for boasting. Because it's all undeserved. We boast in his grace. We boast in Christ. We boast in the cross. And so I'll end with the words of John in 1 John 3, 1, where John says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Let's pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the abundance of your grace and the riches of your kindness to us in Christ. Oh, Father, help us to embrace these realities and help us to set our hope fully. Set our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed on that day. That we would not live for the things of this earth that fade away. But Lord, we have an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us undefiled, imperishable. Oh Lord, help us to embrace these things by faith so that we might persevere in our day-to-day walk with you in this world that is filled with trouble. We're so thankful, Lord. We're so thankful for who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.